Welcome to episode 198 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on May 14th, 2022. I'm Michael Tunnell, your host, and this is a Tux Digital podcast. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we've got some distro news, some app news, enterprise news, and we're going to discuss the big news, well, kind of, from NVIDIA. All this and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux. Good news. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Before we get started with the show this week, we're only two episodes away from Twill 200. I want to do something special. So based on many comments, people seem to like the reaction videos that I made on this channel. And I thought, since I've made close to 200 episodes of Twill now, I'm going to probably regret this, and it's not a great idea. I know. What do you think if I were to create a reaction video of the old episodes of Twill? I'm going to leave it up to you whether I do this or not. I set up, I set up a poll on the forum thread for this episode and a poll on the YouTube community section. I will have links to both of these in the show notes. And if you'd like to vote on whether or not I do a reaction video, reacting to my past self. Why am I even considering this? So, links in the show notes. The Fedora project has released the latest version of Fedora Linux with Fedora 36. As someone who uses Fedora as their daily driver, it is safe to say that I am very much interested in this release, especially since I will need to be upgrading to it pretty soon. So, let's talk about what's new in Fedora 36. Well, Fedora 36 comes with Linux kernel 5.17, Mesa 22.0 drivers, and OpenSSL 3.0. So unlike other distros that are associated with a static release model, that's not exactly how Fedora works, but that's kind of closer. That's not rolling. It's kind of in the middle. Anyway, Fedora 36 should work nicely with the latest hardware, thanks to the latest uh, kernel support and also the Mesa drivers. A Fedora 36 Workstation Edition is shipping with the latest version of the GNOME desktop environment with GNOME 42. A few highlights to mention for GNOME 42 that you will have in Fedora 36 are a global dark mode. Wayland Session is now the default for those who are using in NVIDIA's proprietary graphics drivers. A new screenshot tool was added that also supports video recordings of your screen, which is pretty cool. And they've also significantly improved the input handling, resulting in lower input latency and improved responsiveness when the system is under load. This is particularly beneficial for games and graphics applications. If you'd like to learn more about GNOME 42 specific stuff, then check out the link in the show notes for Twill 191, where we covered GNOME 42 in a lot more detail. Fedora 36 also provides improvements for sysadmins, including the latest release of Ansible and improvements to Fedora Server Edition. Fedora 36 also comes with other spins for those who don't know. So if you'd like the latest version of KDE Plasma on Fedora or the latest version of LXQt on Fedora or any other desktop environment for that matter, then Fedora 36 spins would be something for you to check out. And now for a quick follow-up on a previous Fedora topic that we covered in Twill 193, Fedora 37 will not be deprecating legacy BIO support. In episode 193 of Twill, we talked about a potential change that could impact users with the upcoming Fedora 37 release regarding BIOS and UEFI. At some point, this is inevitable to happen in general because UEFI is going to be a requirement eventually by hardware manufacturers, but for now, 
it's just a bit too soon. So I'm glad to see that they've decided to hold off on this until a time when it is needed. And if you'd like to learn more about Fedora 36, whether you want to look at the workstations or the spins, or you just want to check out the more information about the BIOS topic, then you can find links in the show notes. But also check out Destination Linux episode 278, which is being recorded live tomorrow at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And we're going to be having Matthew Miller, the project lead of Fedora, joining us to talk about Fedora Project in general, as well as the latest release of Fedora Linux 36. So be sure to check that out live tomorrow at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, or you can check the links in the show notes for this episode where the final version of that episode for Destination Linux. It's a podcast, so you could watch it live or not. It's up to you. Red Hat held their annual Red Hat Summit this week, and we've got a lot of news to talk about from it. We can't cover everything, but we have new releases of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and also some news regarding Red Hat in the automotive space. First, let's talk about the various releases of RHEL. The latest update to RHEL 8 is out with RHEL 8.6, which has new security features to mitigate potential risks across the hybrid cloud. These include support for smart card authentication with sudo and SSH in the web console for performing administrative functions and accessing remote hosts. RHEL 8.6 introduces a new checksum option to the SE module command to allow users to verify the versions of installed SE Linux policy modules. Initial support for Stratus storage in the web console to allow users to create, configure, and manage Stratus storage pools and file systems. There's also a new firewall system role in, uh, which is present for the RHEL 8.6 release to provide organizations with the ability to automate their management of their firewall configuration. And while 8.6 is certainly a useful update, it is firmly in the shadow of the other RHEL release, which is Red Hat's announcement for RHEL 9.0. So security is an important factor for Red Hat, and it's always something that's at the forefront of RHEL releases, and RHEL 9 makes that clear with a very heavy focus on security. Beyond the usual RHEL hardening, testing, and vulnerability scanning, RHEL 9 incorporates features that help address hardware-level security vulnerabilities like Spectre and Meltdown. This includes capabilities to help user space processes create memory areas that are inaccessible to potentially malicious code. These security features include the smart card authentication, where users can make use of a smart card authentication to access remote hosts through the RHEL web console. There's also additional security profiles, and also SSSD, the Enterprise Single Sign-On Framework, now includes more details for event logging. And this includes time to complete tasks, errors, authentication flow, and much more. And also there's new search capabilities also enabled to analyze performance and configuration issues. Red Hat also introduces Integrity Me Measurement Architecture, or IMA, digital hashes and signatures in RHEL 9. And with IMA, users can verify the integrity of the operating system with digital signatures and hashes, which is very important to make sure you have the right versions you want to have. And with this, you can detect rogue infrastructure modifications so you can stop system compromises in their tracks as they happen. Also, RHEL 9.0 has many improvements in the container space. One of those is automatic container rollback with Podman, which is very, very cool. So Podman is RHEL's integrated container management technology. This automatically detects if a newly updated container fails to start. And if it does, then it rolls the container back to a previous version that was working, which is very, very nice to see. RHEL 9.0 also has comprehensive edge management delivered as a service to oversee and scale remote deployments with greater control and security functionality. 
and there's so much more. There's just tons of stuff. This is only scratching the surface of this release. Every time there's a new version of RHEL, there's always massive updates, and this is no different with RHEL 9.0. So basically, it has changes to improve the way that people use Linux in the enterprise, cloud, and so much more. And if you want to check out the full details, you can find links in the show notes. But the last thing I wanted to talk about from the Red Hat Summit is the announcement of General Motors' end-to-end software platform, Ultify. I think that's what you're supposed to, I don't know. The goal of Ultify is to eventually make a smart car that incorporates all the abilities of your smartphone and more. The reason I'm including this in this topic is Ultify is being powered by RHEL 9, or some parts or components of RHEL 9. Estimates that are by 2024, you could have a car powered by Red Hat, and that sounds pretty awesome to me. So, if you'd like to learn more about any of these Red Hat related topics, then check out the links in the show notes. This week, we had some massive news from the NVIDIA team. They announced some news that got the community talking about what this means for the Linux ecosystem. And that news is NVIDIA is releasing an open source kernel driver for their GPUs. Specifically, that's the part that matters. It's for their GPUs. Now, I mean, it's not completely open. We'll get to that in a second. As we just finished talking about Red Hat and their new release of RHEL, I also wanted to take a moment to thank Red Hat for their efforts in this topic because Red Hat has played a critical role in getting NVIDIA to make this awesome change. So Christian Schaller of Red Hat stated on his personal blog that as the only Linux vendor, Red Hat, with significant engineering footprint in GPUs, Red Hat has been working closely with NVIDIA for a couple of years now trying to help prepare the ground for NVIDIA moving to a model with an open source kernel driver. So that's why I wanted to point out to thank Red Hat for that effort, because it is something that people would like to see, and we're on the early stages of that becoming a reality. Now, I have seen a wide variety of takes on this since it was announced. Everywhere from people praising NVIDIA for open sourcing their drivers to people bashing NVIDIA for only doing a half-step since the parts that have become open sourced are not relevant to most users just yet. So let's break it down about let's break down what this means for the Linux ecosystem and what all has changed. So first of all, let's address the concerns with the half-stepped portion. It is true that Nvidia kept most of its driver code closed source, but I also think it is important to keep in mind that practically no one in the Linux community expected Nvidia to ever release anything as open source in regards to their GPU drivers. Now, they have done open source stuff in the past, but it was always completely irrelevant to the GPU drivers, so I personally didn't expect this to ever happen at any degree. So this is a good thing, even if it is a small amount of the drivers, because it shows potential that it could could become more in the future. And I also want to be clear, that I'm not praising NVIDIA for this this partial open sourcing. It's good that they are doing something in regards to open sourcing the GPU modules, but it's not like NVIDIA has turned over a new leaf all of a sudden. So for those who are praising NVIDIA for doing this, they haven't really done it yet. There's potential that they will, but not exactly just yet. I mean, NVIDIA did win an award from Linus Torvalds many, many years ago that no one should want. They won the award of the single worst company we've ever dealt with. That's the... That's a quote from Linus Torvalds. So hopefully they are changing their tune because I think NVIDIA products are great and I would like to use them, but I also would like to have a hassle-free experience. 
that currently we do not have. So in the future, there is potential that that could happen. What has been released is an out-of-tree source code uh, kernel driver, which has been tested to support CUDA use cases on data center GPUs. And also, this is the only part that's really kernel-related. A big part of the modern graphics drivers are to be found in the firmware and the user space components, and those are still closed source. So, what does this news mean for Linux users? Well, not much, really. Well, yet. Not much yet. But what does it mean for Nuvo? This is a project that does, it's a, it's a community project that does a reverse engineering of the GPU drivers for NVIDIA. And this is actually great news for the Nuvo community and the Nuvo driver. For those unfamiliar, Nuvo is the in-kernel graphics driver for NVIDIA GPUs, which was originally developed as reverse engineering, as I talked about, but which has over the years, over the recent years, had some significant impact from NVIDIA directly, which is, again, something I never expected to say. It's a fully functional, but it is also kind of limited by not having access to to some abilities, such as doing reclocks for the NVIDIA cards, meaning that it can't give you full performance like the proprietary binary driver can. Now, this change from NVIDIA doesn't make much difference with the Nuvo drivers right now, but it does open a path to improve those drivers and possibly even more. And the way I look at it is this. NVIDIA may have done a half step, yes, by only open sourcing a small portion of the drivers, but I personally never expected them to open source anything related to their GPUs, so I will take this as a win. Well, I'll take this as a win with a giant asterisk nest to it because, really, okay, depends on what happens from here. We'll have to wait and see what happens because something similar happened with AMD, and now that Intel and AMD have proven that open sourcing the drivers of their hardware is not only a good thing to do for the ecosystem, it's also a good business move. I mean, AMD used to be a company that people would not even consider purchasing from because their drivers were far from ideal. When AMD embraced open source, everything started changing for the company. AMD is now successfully battling against NVIDIA and Intel, and in the Linux community, AMD has become a big player by providing out-of-the-box support for us and people who are thinking of switching to AMD hardware because all of these changes that they have made it easier to use for Linux. And I switched to AMD GPU a couple years ago because of these changes specifically, and it has been an awesome experience to not have to worry about drivers. I just install a distro, and I'm done. That's awesome. I hope NVIDIA realizes that as well and realizes that is the right path and embraces the open source aspects further. But we'll have to wait and see. But in the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about this topic, link's in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. I mean, the product docs are awesome. The amount of tutorials that they have is 
tons of tutorials and they constantly get updated to improve them. It's just a fantastic resource for, the, for people who want to learn stuff about the cloud. Go to check out DigitalOcean for that. Also, check out DigitalOcean because you can get uh, support at every stage of growth. From teams of one person to teams of a thousand people, with simple, powerful cloud computing, you can get growing at DigitalOcean. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because with DigitalOcean, you're going to get $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. And there's just so much great stuff about DigitalOcean. I am so, I'm so, I'm so thankful to them as being a sponsor, but also just having that service because we use it all the time for the Tux Digital community. Like our forum is powered by DigitalOcean and our Jitsi server is powered by DigitalOcean. So much great stuff. So go check it out. Get your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash Tux2022. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. KDE Connect is an awesome project that allows you to integrate your Android smartphone with your Linux computer. It gives you a ton of options like being able to synchronize your clipboard between devices, send files back and forth between devices, and even use your phone's touchscreen as a touchpad for your computer if you want to do that. And I'm a big fan of KDE Connect, and I use it all the time for a variety of reasons. There are even some cool hidden features that you can do to enhance the already awesome functionality that it provides that I use quite often. And I've been using KDE Connect since it was first released because convergence has been a buzzword for many years. And every instance of convergence that I've seen has been some weird approach or another except for KDE Connect. In my opinion, KDE Connect does convergence the right way. All of your devices are independent, while also all of them are connected to each other. That is awesome, and that is what I want Convergence to be. I've seen other versions where it's a single device that sends connections, like everything is stored on that one device. Well, that's not Convergence, that's just isolation. Anyway, the biggest request from the community for KDE Connect has been to provide support for iOS users, so people with iPhones and iPads can benefit from this proper Convergence. Well, I've got great news for all of you iOS users. KD Connect has released a version to the Apple App Store. So if you are using an iPhone or an iPad, you can now work with KD Connect to connect your Linux laptop or Linux desktop with your phone. So there's a lot of features. It doesn't have every single feature that is available in the Android version due to limitations of iOS. But what it does have are a shared clipboard so you can copy and paste between your devices, shared files and URLs so you can send files and URLs from your computer to your phone or vice versa. Use your phone screen as your computer's touchpad, like I said, and also remote commands to run commands on your computer from your phone, which is really cool and pretty powerful. It kind of allows you to make sort of a stream deck with your phone, so to speak. And now it is worth noting, like I said, not everything is going to be available in this version like they are in the Android version due to limitations of iOS, but most of the awesome features are available. And if you'd like to check out iOS edition of KDE Connect, or just want to learn more about KDE Connect in general, links in the show notes. Network Manager is an almost ubiquitous software for the Linux desktop, but for managing wired and wireless network interfaces. And this week, we saw the release of Network Manager 1.38. So Network Manager 1.38 brings a variety of improvements such as Wi-Fi hotspots will now use a stable random channel unless one is chosen manually. 
They've added support for the throw route type, which is similar to the black hole, unreachable, or prohibit route types. They've also changed it so the static IPv6 addresses use the IPv6 dot addresses and preferred over the addresses from DHCPv6. Also, Network Manager 1.38 now manages VETH devices with the name ETH uh, asterisk. That's a fun thing to say. By default, in order to support the managing of networks and LXD containers, which is very important, and also various other bug fixes and improvements. And if you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Network Manager, you'll find links in the show notes. Google's Flutter development framework finally achieved its cross-platform aspirations with a stable release for Linux and macOS. So Flutter 3.0, announced at Google's I.O. Developer Conference, provides developers with a way to write apps for the six major consumer-facing platform targets using the Dart programming language, and that's not to mention embedded devices. There's also some other things that are pretty interesting we're going to get to in a second. So Tim Sneath, Director of Product and User Experience for Flutter and Dart, says that now with Flutter 3.0, we finally reached the point where we have completed that journey. We have all of the six major platforms, iOS, Android, Web, Windows, macOS, and Linux, all supported as stable parts of the Flutter framework. Now, Flutter is no slouch when it comes to popularity as a framework because it's pretty new, but it also has over 23,000 packages in the Flutter ecosystem, and that number is steadily growing. Now, Flutter has been an interesting framework for some, and up until now, mostly ignored by Linux developers due to its lack of support for Linux desktop. However, with this change, it might be something that some developers will be looking at. I think there are some benefits to this because I've seen Flutter being used for applications that are then packaged as Electron apps to be able to make Linux desktop apps, but they're not really desktop apps. And while I I am mostly fine with Electron apps, this makes it possible to turn those applications into something more akin to a native desktop app. But of course, it wouldn't exactly be a native app, but hopefully there would still be improvements to performance and other things compared to the Electron versions with this possibility of using Flutter desktop applications through this new Flutter 3.0. Another interesting aspect of 3.0 release of Flutter is Google's decision to support casual game development via its casual games toolkit. It wouldn't be a powerhouse for gaming or anything like that, but it's interesting to see being added to an application framework. And I thought maybe this could be used for various gamification of types of apps. I think that could be pretty cool if someone were to do that with this new toolkit. And if you'd like to learn more about Flutter 3.0, I'll have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash tux. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, it provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, even automatically generate usernames for you now, and also automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. You can access your data across many different types of devices as well, such as your web browser, mobile applications, desktop application, or even on the command line. Plus, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data, which is incredibly important for a password manager, as you would probably expect. 
So go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can for sure, but I think you want to check out their premium account because you get a lot of great extra features for less than a dollar per month. That's right, less than a dollar per month. You get one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, uh, Bitwarden Send for being able to securely transfer files to people, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get your account today. And also, I think you want to check out the premium account, like I said, because even if you don't want to use some of this, that stuff, you can it's a less than a dollar per month. So you can just show your support for this awesome software by giving them basically $10 a year. And I think anybody would see the, the value in that. So go to bitwarden.com slash tux to check it out. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Earlier in the show, we talked about Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And there is another enterprise Linux distribution that I find pretty interesting, and that is Alma Linux. So the Alma Linux Foundation has announced the release of Alma Linux 8.6 Sky Tiger. Alma Linux is a community-driven, RHEL-based distro that aims to take the place of CentOS Linux after the changes made last year to the CentOS, uh, CentOS development and release structures. Alma Linux is, an impre is impressive in a lot of ways, and one of those ways is being just how fast the turnaround time is for their releases in relation to RHEL itself. In fact, Alma Linux 8.6 was made available within 48 hours after release of the upstream RHEL 8.6. Now, this is ready for production release and is for the x86-64, ARC-64, and the PPC-64LE architectures. And the features and improvements in Alma Linux 8.6 are web console enhancements, some brand new system roles that make system administration simpler, security updates include upstream versions for the SCAP security guide, OpenSCAP, and other packages among many other improvements. If you'd like more details in to the features of Alma Linux 8.6, then you can refer to the 8.6 section of Rail topic we, we did earlier in the show, or you can also check out the links in the show notes. This week, we saw the 1.0 release of the Modern App Store. This project comes from Rudra Saraswat. Sorry if I said that wrong. This is the same developer that brought to us the Ubuntu Unity project, the Ubuntu Ed project, and the developer behind the revival of Unity 7 that we talked about last week. Modern is an app store similar to GNOME Software and KDE Discover, as it includes support for app packages, snaps, flat packs from the FlatHub, and devs out of the box. So at the moment, it currently only supports Debian-based distributions like Ubuntu, but support for Fedora Linux and Arch Linux are also on the roadmap for Modron. Rudra says that he is also working on adding support for MakeDeb packages in the future. And I remember a time when many years ago, when the Linux ecosystem didn't have any sort of app store to speak of. And now we have an abundance of them, and with Modron adding to the mix with this latest release. And this is also available as an app image for those who would like to check it out. And I look forward to trying Modern out myself when it supports other distros like Fedora or Arch. But for those currently using Ubuntu who are interested in checking out Modern, you can find links in the show notes. Fedora Media Writer is a tool used to make bootable USB drives for Linux distros. This is made by Fedora for Fedora, but it also works on any distro and even Windows and Mac OS. 
Fedora Media Writer has been my go-to for a while because it's straightforward, it's easy to use, it also guides you along the way as you use it, and it's one of the most reliable solutions I've ever used for this kind of thing. And this week we saw the latest release of Fedora Media Writer with version 5.0. Fedora Media Writer is now based on Qt 6, which is pretty cool as it's not very common to see just yet. And also 5.0 has a completely new UI, even equipped with native styles for Windows and Mac OS. 5.0 also added support for more variants of Fedora Linux, including Fedora Kinoite, the immutable KDE edition of Fedora Linux. For those familiar with Fedora Silverblue, Kinoite is essentially Silverblue, but with the KDE Plasma desktop instead of GNOME. Fedora Media Writer is a really nice utility for creating bootable USB drives, and if you'd like to check it out for yourself, you can find links in the show notes. There are many websites out there on the web for jobs. So practically one for every industry exists and the technology industry has, well, plenty. There's Dice, The Ladders, Crunchboard, and many others. But what about open source related jobs? While there are a few open source job sites out there, we even have jobs po being posted on the Tux Digital Community Forum. There is a new website trying to enter this space and that is the Open Source Job Hub. So the Open Source Job Hub is an interesting entry because it was created by Linux New Media USA. This is the open source publishing company behind the Linux magazine, so it's likely to garner some attention from companies looking for talent. There are reports that demand for open source jobs continue to grow, and 92% of managers are having trouble finding enough talent. That is a significant, staggering amount. So Brian Osborne, the CEO of Linux New Media, said that Open Source Job Hub not only covers jobs using open source technologies, but it also covers other roles such as sales, marketing, and management at companies dedicated to open source. Our goal is to give the global open source community a specific platform through which to make career connections. So if you are looking for a job in the open source space or know someone who is, then you'll find links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel and the show, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. This is also where you can see where you can become a patron for other shows on the network. And if you would like to become a patron of this show, you can also get to join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between the topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux t-shirt at the store for Tux Digital. You can go to tuxdigital.com to get a link to that. Plus, while you're there, you can check out all the other great stuff we have, like hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and just much more. So check that out at TuxDigital.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Tux Digital Network. And you can find links to those episodes of those shows at TuxDigital.com. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, or 1700 UTC. So join us live in the live chat room to discuss all the Linux news each and every week, except for next week, because next week we will not be live because I'm going to do a pre-recorded. Now, the patrons will still be able to join me for that pre-recording, but the next week's episode will not be live on Saturday. So if you would like to attend that recording, you will need to be a patron. And it's going to be probably sometime on Wednesday. I haven't really decided an exact time yet. So 
be sure to become a patron on sponsors or Patreon, and you can be updated when that happens. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Tux Digital Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. And also, be sure to check out Destination Linux tomorrow, where we interview Matthew Miller for Fedora to talk about Fedora 36. That's going to be so, so fantastic. You don't want to miss it. So check it out at tuxdigital.com slash Destination Linux.